0: When you're trading options, Fidelity has just what you need with straightforward but powerful tools to help you select a strategy and execute your ideas. And they offer a wide range of information and insights to help simplify your trading experience. Have a question? Ask it live during their small classes and coaching sessions. Need information? Check out their educational videos, articles, and webinars. See why it's easy to trade options your way at Fidelity. Start now at fidelity.com options Visit iConnections.io.
1: Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N A N M L S 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities LLC, member Finra, SIPC. Welcome to the Monday edition of On The Tape. I'm Dan Nathan. I'm joined by Guy Christopher Adami and also EY from SoFi. That would be Liz Young. She's the head strategist over there at SoFi. Welcome, people. What up? up? What up? All right. We got a big show because we got a big week in the markets. We got a big chunk of the Magnificent Seven reporting earnings this week. And I'm actually going to have Gene Munster, who's the managing partner at Deepwater Asset Management, after our conversation to dissect some of the big earnings that we're going to get this week out of Alphabet, out of Microsoft, out of Amazon, I believe. Maybe there's a few others in that grouping of seven. But guys, let's just get going here because we got the Fed, we got the ECB, we got some inflation data but it was this story out of axios this morning it was their one big thing it was saying it's not just the magnificent seven here we're talking about the russell index at a big week last week. It was up 1.6%. That's versus uh NASDAQ that was down about a half a percent. But I thought this was interesting. The S&P 500 equal weight index, which strips out the influence of giant companies, was also up roughly 1.6% over twice the gain of the market cap weighted index. So we're talking about a broadening out. This is a theme that I know that a lot of market pundits have been observing over the last few weeks or so. We've had the banks, after their earnings join the party, some industrials, some other sort of cyclical names. Liz, talk to me a little bit about how you're thinking about this stat. And we know that this was driven a bit by just some of the earnings we saw last week, obviously, towards the end of the week, Tesla um, sold off for a couple days after its earnings, Netflix also too. And, And again, you can make the argument that this is really bullish in the face of those big gainers coming back into earth a little bit that again, I think this is what the Axios piece is saying is that money's finding a new home.
2: Yeah, there's no denying that the rally has broadened out. And that's something that naysayers, self-included, when the rally really began with fervor and was so narrowly led, we would say, it can't, it can't possibly be sustainable like this. It has to have some participation from other groups. And, and now we've seen that. We've seen smaller stocks participate. I love it when small caps participate in upside. And then you see other sectors participate. So I think there's a couple things going on here. As some of the steam comes out of those names, whether just because valuation are too higher because there was an earnings report that was disappointing for whatever reason. The big thing that I think we have to notice is that there's still enough optimism and bullishness in the market that people aren't taking their money out of equities. They're just rotating within equities. And then when you look at if you're a buyer, if you want to be a buyer and you're trying to take your money out of one of those big names and put it somewhere else, you're going to put it to work in a place that looks attractive from a valuation basis. What looks attractive? The stuff that hasn't participated yet. So that's how you get this broadening out in sectors, in size categories. And then we start to try to figure out what's the message that it's sending. Is it actually sending a cyclical message from the market saying, okay, cyclicality is alive and well. This is usually the type of behavior that you see early cycle and in the beginning of a new bull market, in the beginning of an expansion – I'm not sold that the economic data proves that yet, but this is the type of market behavior that you would usually see in equities. What has not happened in concert is a re-steepening of the yield curve that has actually stuck So that's the one part that's like eh, two plus two is not quite adding up to four here.
1: We'll get to the steepening of the yield curve or the potential for it. And we had a great conversation with Mike Wilson, who is like the CEO of over there at Morgan Stanley Asset Management and the head strategist over there. And we talked about that guy a little bit on our Friday pod that dropped obviously, and Friday on your favorite podcast store. So check that out. That was a great conversation that we had with Mike, Danny, Guy, and myself. But Guy, Liz just mentioned valuation. And I think this is really interesting because it speaks to the broadening out a little bit. And this is something that Mike Wilson had a comment on too. So this is per facts the forward 12 month PE ratio, the S&P 500 of 19 and a half is above the five-year average of 18.6 and above the 10-year average of 17.5. And Mike's made this point, okay? He was talking about his kind of bearish call and why he got tactically bullish in October. We had that 20-some percent rally, and then he got bearish again. He made the point that strip out those magnificent seven, okay, and you really did have large parts of the S&P 500 that bottomed out in October at 14, 15 times or so. So maybe a lot of the damage was done in the more cyclical sort of names. It was just these extraordinary group of, let's say, seven to 10 stocks that have now benefited from massive multiple expansion this year, all the excitement around AI.
0: Which is double-edged sword, right? It's a great thing that a lot of these stocks bottomed out and valuations still are reasonable in so many of these names. But it's a bad thing in so much as the market, the names that are leading us, those 7 to 10 names, are valuations that, quite frankly, don't make a lot of sense. You back out Facebook, yeah, maybe. Google, maybe. But then you look at a Microsoft, which is now north of 30 times, uh, Apple, which is probably either side of 30 times. There are a number of stocks that are just valuations that don't make sense in this environment. And by the way, 19 and a half times, that's assuming earnings come in and you're probably two turns too rich in terms of valuations. You back out probably 12% too rich in terms of valuation. Then you, t- on top of that, the fact that earnings are not going to come into where a lot of people anticipate then you have a market, in my opinion, it's probably somewhere between 22 and 25% too rich, just doing the back of the envelope math.
1: All right, so let's talk a little bit about what might happen with yields, what the message of the Fed's gonna be when they announced the rate decision the cme fed funds tracker is pricing a nearly certainty of a 25 basis point hike that comes after that june i think they were calling it a hawkish pause which liz in hindsight seems so goofy like that they literally took one meeting off you know what i mean at where it was already i think like at some point in may it started decreasing the odds of a increase and i think many people were getting you know excited about the fact that the fed would just pause altogether and then if you looked out at the fed funds future they were starting to price cuts at some point guys made the point and you made the point that if they start cutting okay it's going to be because they see weakening data what are they going to interpret here because i know that a lot of like q2 gdp estimates have been ratcheted up close to two percent or so okay that was i i think it's interesting to note that two percent or so was the 10-year average prior to the pandemic of gdp growth so we're getting back there but it really is about inflation so give me a sense of what you think we're going to hear from the Fed. And then if we were to do a little bit of a split screen with the ECB, the ECB seems fairly bent on remaining hawkish here.
2: We've talked about this. I know Guy and I have talked about this a number of times. The ECB and, and Europe has a bigger inflation problem than we do. They started from a higher level. They haven't really gotten their arms around it. So I do think the ECB has a little bit more clearance to continue to be hawkish. This is a huge week. We say that every time there's a Fed meeting, right? This is the most important Fed meeting since the last one. And the messaging this time, around because inflation has come down considerably and it's come down in a relatively linear fashion. But this is pivotal because we know that we just passed the year over year peak comp. So now the comps get tougher as we move forward. So the message that the Fed is going to have to send is going to be something along the lines of if they hike, if they do another hike, they're going to have to say something like, we don't feel confident that it's going to keep coming down at that speed, right? We're not totally sold that it's going to get back down to target at this clip and stay there. And they're probably going to have to cite things like still strong growth, housing markets still rising, other types of demand that have not cooled off to their satisfaction. And then probably something along the lines of, and the labor market is still strong, so we have space to do this. I don't think it makes much of a difference anymore. 25 basis points, that's not going to change the game. It's messaging now. And it's them being Committed to this path and committed to this cause. If they pause and stop too soon, monetary conditions continue to loosen, then we end up in a worse situation than what we started with and rewind to the 70s, and there we are, right? So I think that's exactly what they're trying to avoid. This is all about messaging. We may hear a pretty hawkish message. I'm not sure they're going to be able to follow through on that as the year goes on, but I still think they're going to have to verbally say, we're committed to fighting this
0: year over year comps that I think people should be focused on. And we should listen to that conversation with Mike Wilson for a number of different reasons, not least of which the fact that he brought up September, October, November is when he thinks there's going to be a reacceleration of inflation. By the way, I agree with that. I think Elizabeth does as well. And other people have said that Doug Cass has pointed out the comps are more difficult now in terms of just the absolute numbers you're going to start to get. And I think the Fed understands that. And it's not the Fed that's done a poor job messaging, in my opinion, it's the market that just for every reason, and refuses to listen. I think it will be a hawkish tone if they cut in early next year, which is what the market seems to be expecting. As you said, Dan, it's not going to be for good reasons. If you think that somehow first quarter of next year cut is going to be everything's okay and inflation's tame and we're just cutting because we're going to normalize once again, I think you're sorely mistaken. I think there's an extraordinarily slim chance of that being the reason.
1: Yeah, there was an interesting article in Bloomberg yesterday, U.S. economic soft landing hinges on Fed's tolerance of inflation. And this is something that we continue to hear a bit more and more about. And a big problem for the Fed is obviously the tight labor market, right? And we know, and and we've been talking about this for ages, that the stickiest part of inflation is wage inflation and some of the weird dynamics that we had during the pandemic and and what happened afterwards. And then you talk about deglobal and reshoring, all of that is really inflationary. And that might be a multi-year or a multi-decade phenomenon. If you think about how inflation went to disinflation because of exporting a lot of this manufacturing away from our shores, that was a multi-decade trend. And I guess the one part that, that we haven't talked about yet is what's going on with China. If you don't think for a second, that deglobalization and and the, the tensions that have been bubbling up in and around the situation with what might or might not happen with Taiwan, and then you think about everything in the chips space and the Chips Act that we have over here, but then also, obviously, all of these restrictions about our companies selling advanced chips to China. There's something going on, man, and we keep talking about these deflationary readings that they're having and the, I guess, the stimulus that a lot of folks are hoping for because they're talking about GDP guy over there at 5% or so, we're on the upswing to 2%. We've never had this narrow of a band between our GDP and China's. And when you think about the engine for global growth is really stalling out at a time where the ECB and the US are continuing to raise rates. That has to be a situation, You used to use this term a lot, guy, the witch's brew. We haven't pulled that one out in a while, but come on, man. Doesn't that seem like something's about to happen maybe in the back half of 2023 on the global growth front?
0: Without question. You remember, we had a huge market meltdown. I think it was 2015, August. And, and if I'm off by a year, don't at me. But it was when the, the devalue of the yuan took place. And right before our very eyes, you're seeing the yuan continue to weaken. And at a certain point, there's not a lot they can do to probably stop it, although they have tried in the past. That's something you have to be on the watch for. There are field hospitals being built in China. What are they building field hospitals for? You can Google that and find out. And that's not just some conspiracy theory that's going on. This China-Taiwan thing continues to sort of move forward. Kyle Bass on CNBC this morning, you should listen to some of his comments. He clearly has some concerns. I think the market's completely discounting that. And what does a China-Taiwan situation mean for NVIDIA, Apple, some of these huge technology companies? Go back about two and a half, three months ago. NVIDIA specifically mentioned, I think it was on a Monday, their concerns about a China-Taiwan escalation and how awful it would be for their business. So You're talking about are now companies which are rich in the first place. And if something were to sort of rear its ugly head there, things can get cut I don't want to say in half because that's hyperbolic, but things can cut 15, 20, 30% in the blink of an eye in the back of something like that.
2: And the thing about valuations, particularly in, in groups that are more sensitive to anything that would come out of China, Taiwan, or any headline or shock that would come out of there, when we're in this phase where everything is high, highly valued, overvalued, frothy, whatever you want to call it, it's way more fragile to a shock. And as soon as that hits, it's a precipitous decline. And as much as you want to believe that investors buy things for whatever reason, altruistic reasons, or because they believe in the future of a theme, as soon as valuations start to plummet, everybody gets scared and everybody runs for the door. There are two things that go up in a shock, volatility and correlation. And suddenly it's just indiscriminate selling. I'm not saying that's what has to happen, but from this high level of valuations, we are more fragile to those types of shocks that could take the semiconductors down pretty quickly. And NVIDIA is a company that if that starts to fall, then you look around and it's like there's shrapnel everywhere, right? And you're guilty by association. You're a semiconductor company. It doesn't even matter if you were involved in the narrative or not. You're going down.
1: It's interesting because three of those huge contributors of the Magnificent Seven, the guy you mentioned, Apple, NVIDIA, throw Tesla in there. Their fates really do have a lot to do with China. And there was two headlines about Apple over the weekend. I think this one was the information that they're having a hard time manufacturing these 15 Pro. This is going to be the iPhone that comes out in September, at least announced in September, probably shipping at some point in October, that they're having a a hard time, I don't know, manufacturing the screen so it's bigger, so there's a smaller bezel. I know these are things that Guy tracks on the tech blogs very closely, but think about where a lot of yes, that... Yes, at the iStore. Yeah, where a lot yeah. of that production, <laughs> the genius guy is always hanging out at the Genius Bar this time of year. He's just at the iStore. Like waiting for any tidbits about the next iPhone that's going to come out. There are
0: people that actually do that. If that's what you're spending your time doing, you're just, you're doing life entirely you're, wrong. they are I mean, trying that's, to be on
2: the cutting edge.
0: Yeah, I'd rather stick pins in the certain area of my, of uh, anatomy that proper decorum prohibits me from saying. Anyway, back but, to you. But you know,
1: but it's interesting. So that that's the point on Apple. They still have this tremendous reliance on manufacturing and the access to rare earth materials. The list goes on and on. And obviously, Tesla has that same exposure too. And it's interesting that Elon Musk has been sounding the alarm on deflation, and that's something that's going on in China. And we know that they've been lowering prices fairly aggressively also over there in China. So he might be a CEO that really does have his finger on the pulse of of the, the mood in China, and he knows how important it is, and one of the worries about deflation is that if you just get in this mode as a consumer or as an enterprise who's buying something and you know that the prices are gonna continue to come down, you keep waiting, right? You keep waiting and waiting for it. The flip side of this, and, and this is a really interesting, I think, over the last few weeks phenomenon, we've heard this expression a lot, that chips are the new oil, but guy, I don't know if you noticed this, oil's had a nice little run here, yeah. it bounced off those kinda high 60s, it's find itself, I'm looking at crude right here, it's making like a two and a half month high at about almost 78 bucks here, and this at a time where the growth readings out of China are weak. What's going on here? It seems sort of counterintuitive.
0: The China story we've known for a while now. So I think to a certain extent, that move lower was predicated on the slowdown in China. But what we have here, and it's similar to what we're seeing in the housing market, are just good old-fashioned supply-demand imbalances and fundamentals that are starting to take hold. By the way, it's not just crude oil, which you're correct to mention. Gasoline made a 52-week high last week as well without anybody paying attention. The administration's not going to talk about that, and I totally get it because it doesn't serve the narrative but gasoline is back on its horse. And that's before, by the way, hurricane season starts to kick in any meaningful way. So you're clearly going to see disruptions if you're just paying attention to what's going on, not only here in the United States, but globally with the weather. Number one. Number two, right before our very eyes, the OAH has gone from about 245, I want to say four or so weeks ago, to current levels of about 328. And that's within a whisper of a 52-week high. Energy complex, I think, is finally starting to prove itself. That's something we've talked about for a while, but it's finally starting to get legs, and again, that speaks to sort of this reacceleration of inflation that I think is going to happen from September, October into November.
2: We're still in the middle of travel season. We're still in the middle of driving season. People are going to pay for that gas and people are getting on planes. It's still happening. And energy is something that obviously has not done well if you think about the stocks this year compared to the rest of tech communications, consumer discretionary. And there's some kind of reversal that happened after last year's big 60% gain. It was natural for energy to give some of that back. But now, it's not gonna be left behind in a rotation If we've seen tech stocks give back some of the steam and money flow into other parts of the equity market, whether that's energy stocks or energy related, and I think that's going to keep happening. I've long believed that there is a floor on the price of oil, and that supports a lot of these stocks. There's a floor on the price of oil because of what our administration is going to do and because of just supply constraint that continues to be a narrative in the entire market. So I've liked energy for a while. I still like energy. Do I believe it's going to have another 60% year? Absolutely not. But if you're in the market where you're trying to figure out what's a good buy, what's an attractive valuation and something that's going to have decent demand and not as much ripeness for shock from these levels, I think energy is that play.
1: Another thing that is making the Fed's job a little harder, and again, we keep coming back to the Fed because we have that uh, meeting this week, is the housing market. And Guy, I think it was on market call, and I think with you, Liz, also on Thursday, we talked about this reversal in some of these big housing stocks. They've had massive runs literally Lenar ran like 20 percent into its earnings in june right and then just it looked like a parabolic move we saw a bunch of them just doing about face on thursday morning after opening up i think it was dhi reported better than expected results and then somebody just went for the door and one of the names and it looked like the cascade after and so i think it was interesting there was an article in bloomberg this morning how's the market rebound poses challenge for feds inflation fight Here is a quote from Dallas Fed President Lori Logan. The housing market even looks like it may have bottomed out, okay? So if we're talking about a bottoming out Of the housing market after this kind of retracement a little bit last year after this huge expansion during supply demand, weird dynamics during the pandemic and all those sorts of issues here. If we have a bottoming out and we're gonna have increased demand for housing, despite the fact where mortgage rates are, right? 30 year at seven percent or something like that, where you could have snagged one two years ago below two and a half percent or so. How does this play out for the housing stocks guy related names, the suppliers, maybe the kind of home improvement names? Because that was One day in the home builders, but there's lots of other stocks you haven't really joined the party yet. If you want to look at like a Home Depot or something.
0: So the reversal last week, I think it was on Friday in Pulte Homes, Toll Brothers, DHI, it was something we haven't seen in quite some time in those housing related stocks without question. And actually did it on decent volume. So that's clearly a sign. One day does not a trend make, but it's definitely something you have to watch. But in terms of Lori Logan, I don't know what she's paying attention to. The housing market bottomed out. You had maybe a two or three week period where there were some concerns around the housing market as rates started to go higher. But the data never suggested that things bottomed out at all. Maybe it took a bit of a pause, but there was no bottoming whatsoever. The housing market's been pretty steadfast for quite some time. Rents really haven't gone anywhere. And it's just really, again, we talked about supply demand fundamentals for energy, the same things going on here in the housing market. And you think about it, we've talked about this, there's phenomenon going on where if you had refinanced a year or so ago or a year and a half or so ago with three, three and a half percent, where are you gonna go? You're not going anywhere. That is an asset now instead of a liability. So you are even if you were inclined to sell your home and move, you're somewhat reticent because that that basically rate locks you into not moving. So there's a there's clearly that going on. People aren't leaving. On top of that, there's a supply problem demand is still robust that makes prices go higher and i think that's going to continue for a period of time now with that said again those housing stocks that reversed on friday that's definitely something to watch but in terms of the fundamentals i don't see anything really waning here
2: the supply and demand problem is is an interesting one especially when you talk about home builder stocks If existing homes aren't changing hands, which they're not at at any rapid pace because nobody wants to get a new mortgage at six or seven percent, the only way to solve the demand problem is to build more homes, which is why the home builders have done well. And there have been deals to be gotten from some of those home builders, whether they're partnering with a financing institution and giving out deals where people are getting more attractive mortgage rates if they're building instead of buying an existing property. So I don't think it's You don't have to dig too deep to figure out why home builders have done better in this environment. The thing about the housing market bottoming, though, to Guy's point, prices certainly haven't bottomed. And the housing market is something so dependent on leverage. I would argue that a housing market doesn't bottom until after leverage has peaked. And we're still increasing the leverage amount. People are still willing to take these mortgages out. And another thing about housing is that it's only worth as much as somebody will pay for it. People are still paying that price, so it hasn't gone down yet, and people are still taking out more leverage. We talked about this last week about the article that was in Bloomberg over the weekend, HELOCs now being more popular. So leverage is still increasing at higher rates. Affordability is still very low, and we have to increase the risk to a point where it gets unsustainable, and then it will pop. But it hasn't happened yet. Demand is still there. Home builders are still plugging that hole. And until they cannot anymore, maybe this is the first indicator that they can't plug it entirely or that their demand has weakened, then you start to see it come down. But housing moves so slowly in those regards, you're not gonna see prices react overnight.
1: Before we get out of here, and again, I'm going to hit Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Meta with Gene Munster in their earnings previews after our short break here. But, Guy, I just want to hit you really quickly on some other earnings away from mega cap tech and that I think might be really interesting. We've been talking about some price increases, right, like where companies have pricing power. Some of the streaming companies, Spotify, raised some prices recently. We know that Netflix has been doing that. There was a report over the weekend that Apple might raise the price of their Apple iPhone 15 when it comes out in the fall. Guy, talk to me a little bit about we're going to get earnings from Coke and Procter this week because we've been talking about inflation. We've been talking about companies' ability to pass through higher input costs, right, to consumers. That was at a time where they still had to pay student loans and there was all sorts of fiscal stimulus still flowing through the system when, Rates were zero, basically. We had very easy monetary policy. That has changed a whole heck of a lot in about six months or so, if you think about it. And really, we talked about this lag effect at working through into the economy. What are we likely to see from a Coke and a Procter? These guys were like registering double digit, right? Like gains in, in price over the last year or so. Are we going to start to see that abate? These groups have lagged a little bit of late. I'm just curious, what are you looking for That's here? That's the with-
0: right question. 100%. And Elizabeth talks about this all the time. When inflation is rearing its ugly head. These companies do extraordinarily well because they talk about organic growth, which is complete horseshit. It just means they're effectively ripping their patrons off and outdoing inflation. And their margins increase, I don't want to say exponentially, but to levels they probably haven't seen in quite some time. The flip side is when things start to go the other way, that's when margins start to get hurt. And I think that's the side of the mountain that we now find ourselves in. And the valuations for both Procter & Gamble and Coca-Cola are which may have seemed reasonable with inflation going higher and margins increasing. And again, that quote unquote, organic growth, there's a flip side of that. And I think we're about to find out what the flip side looks like. Now, I don't know if it's gonna be this quarter necessarily, but in my opinion, that's coming to a theater the you and you should absolutely be paying attention to it.
2: With the Fed coming up this week, I still am just amazed at the different levels of inflation, the ways that we try to measure this, right? We've got now Supercore X shelter, which I don't know what's left in there besides Q-tips and dish soap. And apparently, those are pretty affordable so we're doing okay but to guy's point as long as we can pass through those prices those companies will do okay and the thing that i think continues to be lost on people those price increases have already been passed through they're stuck there until companies reduce them inflation is just growing at a slower pace but it's still growing and the prices still went up they are still high and i know that wage growth is now positive from a real perspective But it doesn't make the bite that has already been taken out of people's household finances any smaller.
1: And just to bring this around full circle to the start of this conversation, Coke has rallied about 6% in a straight line in just about a week and a half or so into their print. And so these are difficult setups if you think about it. So that is probably a little bit of the broadening out. Coke in early this month, I think it was on the 12th of July, was making like three or four month lows. And then folks, as the big tech starts cooling their jets a little bit into their earnings, they're just... Just looking for something else that that looks like ready to go here so guy liz thank you so much bright and early on a monday morning here we hope you guys have a great rest of the week we're going to see liz on thursday on market call guy and i have a whole bunch of stuff to do this week stick around after the break i've g munster managing partner at deep water asset management we're going to hit meta apple amazon anything that's reporting alphabet anything with an a this week we're going to talk about it so stick around for that conversation
0: To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities LLC. Member FINRA SIPC.
1: Welcome back to On The Tape. I am joined by Gene Munster. He's the managing partner at Deep Water Asset Management. Gene, welcome back to the pod. Great to be back. This is like your week, man. This is like your two weeks, actually. This is like every major, and I don't know about you, are you calling them the Magnificent Seven? And how do you feel about that name here? The big tech kahun is here.
3: I actually started a couple of weeks ago to refer to them as the Magnificent Seven. I think that is getting enough traction. And how do I feel about it? The acronyms are going to change. But if we just agree, they're going to be seven ones we really care about and stick to that. And maybe we'll change which those seven are. So bottom line, I'm good with it.
1: All right. Fair enough. It makes it easy. It's a little goofy, but I think Kramer started doing this or at least popularizing. He is so good at it. I think he invented the fang too. So we're going to let him have that moment here. And so let, let's do a couple things on this pod right here. And I get the benefit, you and I chat and we get you joining us on Fast Money as all these companies are reporting and you do such an amazing job real time. I think part of it is your preparation for really understanding two things, what you're expecting from a fundamental standpoint and what the street is expecting. And when you think about some of the gig Gains that some of these stocks have had, and they powered the major indices over the last three to four months. You have to assume that expectations are very high. So one of the things I want to do is take. The temperature of the current mood. We did have Netflix and Tesla and a few others report last week. And I would say that the response, at least the investor response, wasn't particularly great. I don't think you could say that any of those earnings were particularly bad or the outlooks. A lot of it had to do with expectations. And then let's look ahead at some of these names over the next two weeks. And we know what they are it's Microsoft, it's Alphabet, it's Meta this week, next week, it's Apple and Amazon. And then I'd also love to get the sense for you because you're always here talking about the here and now. And you're doing it minute by minute, as you are on the show, but you also take a very long-term view on some of these emerging technologies. And i love to get a sense of like how you're thinking about it and the frameworks that you're using at Deepwater Asset Management to think about what I think we could all agree is a secular trend powering the broad market right now, both public and private, but how you're thinking about them long-term. Does that make sense, Gene? I love it, Dan. Let's do it. All right, let's 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 get a quick sense of how you're feeling. You had the weekend to reflect a little bit on what you heard from Tesla, what you heard from Netflix. We saw Spotify put through a price increase. The stock market, at least investors, are reacting to that negatively this morning. This is Monday shortly after the open here. Give us a sense of, okay, a few days out, what did you hear or what did you think caused the 13, 14% pullback in in Netflix? And then also on a much bigger market cap scale, what happened as far as Tesla? And Tesla keeps racking up investment bank downgrades. I know you don't really care a whole heck of a lot about that, but it does speak a little bit to sentiment because from being on the sell side in your prior life, a lot of that has to do with what your clients are saying to you about those companies. And there's been, I think, three or four of them just in the last two, Two weeks or so in tesla
3: indeed and i would put the context of tesla and netflix is going into it the, going into the march quarter it was generally risk off people were, were generally nervous and this quarter it has been more risk on and then you generally see those types of pullbacks the data the magnificent seven up 22 percent from the last three months but down 4% over the last few days. That's as of Friday, just before the close. We've seen some of that pullback here. So that I think there is a slight readjustment of expectations for the back half for the rest of these big tech companies. In the case of Tesla, the piece that I missed here was what margins are going to do over the next uh, few quarters. And I think that's the reason why the stock traded down so much is that if you look at when the numbers came out, the stock was essentially flat, the earnings call went on, the stock was essentially flat, and then they finally addressed the 800-pound gorilla, which was what margin expectations are. Musk essentially dismissed them and said, it's not a big deal. We don't care about margins. We'll get margins longer term. CFO came on and said, we're going to have some stoppages because of a new Model 3 highland that's going to be coming out. And that's going to have a negative impact on deliveries and production, which investors quickly translate to margins. And so you play all of this forward. There is central pressure point on Tesla in the near term, and that's the gross margins for Auto's X credits And in the June quarter was 18.1%. It was 19% in the March quarter and just over 20% in the December quarter. And if you piece all this together, they're probably gonna do 17% in the September quarter. And so that is the reason why Tesla has traded off. In the case of Netflix, They've pulled a lot of levers, they've made a lot of progress in terms of bringing net ads in. And in this case, they guided to somewhat muted upside to what we should have seen with those net ads relative to guidance. It just doesn't quite add up, which gets to an ARPU question. So my point is in both of these cases, we had the key pressure point for the companies essentially disappointing. And I think that from my perspective, I'm thinking about the back half, the rest of the Magnificent Seven here. I think about those being more focused on what's the fundamentals. I'm less uh, focused on what has been the market reaction, the run-ups we've had more recently. I'm more thinking, how are the pressure points gonna perform for each of these big tech companies? And when I we put that together, I think generally, it's going to be positive and seems like a little bit tone deaf relative to what we saw late last week and today. But I think that in general, these companies that are remaining are going to deliver, largely deliver, on their key pressure point.
1: I wanted to get one quick response from you on this with a company like Spotify, for instance, that heading into its print, the stock was up 130% off of its uh, lows in in December, actually a little bit more off of those 52-week lows. And then the company puts out a price increase here. We've been in this extraordinary inflationary period where lots of consumers, a lot of individuals have gotten used to prices going up for things that they hadn't seen gone up in a very long time. When you think about a lot of these technology Platforms, they've been inherently deflationary for consumers for the most part, right? So, you see an investor reaction like this down five, 6% on the headline about prices going up. Does that worry you a little bit? Or do you just say, look at where these stocks have come from? If I was one of these corporations, I'd be doing the same thing right now. And I'm not so concerned about the stock market reaction to them. I'm thinking about it again. On the flip side of this, is if you're thinking about Tesla, they've been lowering prices for the last six to nine months. And we've seen what that has done to to their margins here. This seems like a smart thing to do for a company like Spotify, who's gotten off the mat here. And I know that folks were particularly worried, a whole host of reasons at the end of last year for competitive reasons and the like here. So do you think this is a smart move for a company like Spotify?
3: Absolutely. I would expect if you'd have given me this news before I would have said that the stock is gonna be up modestly, not down modestly. And I think in general, raising prices is a good thing. And I've been supportive of what Tesla's done and why they've been lowering their prices, but uh, ultimately they need to have prices go up, whether it's the form of the actual selling price of the car or full self-driving or some other add-ons, insurance, And so they need prices to go up. So as a general rule, when prices go up, that's good for companies. And I think in the case of Spotify, it's probably more of just expectations. Who knows what they were on some of the fringe metrics? But this is a a positive sign. A lot of people won't even know that the prices went up. Their card will just ultimately be charged a little bit more every month. And I think that what we have seen with content more broadly is that it can sustain a lot of these price increases. So I think it's a smart move and would expect the stock to reverse some of these losses.
1: Let's talk about some of the earnings this week. Microsoft is, uh, to me, obviously the most important one here. The stock has had um, tremendous gains. This year alone, I think it was trading 220 at its lows in January, traded north of 360 last week and there was an interesting phenomenon last week it felt like there was this frenzy of companies to release the pricing of some of their new ai tools we know that microsoft put out a press release about the co-pilot pricing the stock rallied in an astonishing five percent in a straight line on that to a new 52-week high, gaining $130 billion. in market cap, we saw an article in Bloomberg talking about Apple rushing to have competitive products with Microsoft's chat, GPT-enabled, whatever the heck that they're putting that in, in, in Copilot and all the their productivity tools here. And then there was Salesforce announced their, whatever they're calling their GPT thing and the pricing there, that stock rally. There was a lot of that going on last week. And a lot of those stocks reversed off of Some of those highs and i think that might have been a little bit of a bell ringing or so if investors were like waiting to hear what the pricing might look like and not having any sort of visibility about when the uptake of these products and what it might cannibalize and how the pricing may work in the context of a broader suite of products that enterprises buy right so we can all agree on the fact that seemed like a buzzy sort of headline But when you think about how the stocks reacted and then ultimately gave back some of those gains, we might be at a precipice where there's nothing That Microsoft can say when they report Tuesday after the close and and guide that is going to make investors really feel reassured uh, about valuations and the like because they are getting a bit stretched here. Gene
3: agree on the Microsoft piece, and I would put the pressure point on Microsoft. They talk about every company has one or two pressure points, lots of moving parts. Don't be distracted by the moving parts. Focus on the pressure points. They can change quarter to quarter, but in the case of Microsoft this quarter, it's all about AI and the outlook and how they're going to improve ARPU with that. they essentially reported that already as you mentioned the pricing on the co-pilot office is remarkably high it's $30 a month the existing licensing is about $10 a month and just to quickly put this into perspective that their office business is about a 50 billion dollar a year business they're gonna do just under 250 billion for the whole company so that puts uh, that in a perspective but if you go from ten to thirty dollars a month that could incrementally increase their revenue by 40%. And so there's a big uptake, but as you said, you have to look at this in the context of all the different products they have and what's the uptake going to be. Not everyone's going to pay the the 30 bucks a month versus 10 bucks a month, but any way you put this together, the news that they had out about the pricing of Office was impressive. And so the fact that the stock has traded off, I think that was the good quarter. That was the big blowout aha moment, I think, that investors were looking for. And there was a piece when that, that news came out, there was this surge of optimism. Then it's buying the rumors, selling the news type of an effect. And I would absolutely agree with you that their core business right now is still just bouncing along. It is still generally has headwinds relative to some of the information workers and what's happening in the hiring trends around that that's generally more in the headwind category. This is all about optimism about where AI can go. I don't think there's much that they can say. And this if we back up and look at what they said on their March earnings call, Microsoft was by far the most ambitious and optimistic and table pounding around the AI opportunity. If they do that again this quarter, which they will, I think that investors are going not to be as impressed. And so I think when you put it together, everything at Microsoft is fine, but I don't think the stock is necessarily going to be fine post their earnings.
1: Yeah. And again, trading about 31 times fiscal 2024, expected earnings growth of, let's call it 14% or so on expected sales growth of 12% flat margins. Again, if they are able to take that 50 billion piece of that 200 plus total billion, right? And automatically that just raises the seat. But we don't know what the costs are associated, right, with this additional compute. So it might actually come in at kind of a lower margin in the near term. Is that fair to say or no? Is that something that people are giving a sense? Because when we think about NVIDIA and we think of the demand for these advanced chips and how they're pricing them right now and how the, the cost of compute, any excess capacity is being gobbled up right now, increasing the pricing there, it just seems like this is one that a lot of investors have not really thought about Because if margins come down for these increased revenues in the near term, these stocks trading where they are at historically high levels, it just seems like there's a lot of enthusiasm priced in right here.
3: I agree on the second part. A lot of enthusiasm priced in on the fr- that I'd say over the near term, over this quarter, potentially next quarter. I think if you look at the long term, just quickly on that pricing impact, just really high level numbers, is that OpenAI trains their models every approximately every three weeks. That typically costs about four to five million dollars to train the model. Microsoft does this. If you look at it over a year, if they keep trading training at that cadence. incremental revenue from this price increase will i think far outweigh the price of the training the models now there's compute piece to it as well but i think there is enough in there this should be accretive to margins if they would have taken the price from let's say ten dollars to 15 i would say it's probably dilutive 10 to 20 i'd say it's a guess but 10 to 30 that, to me, I think that this will be accretive. And I think that it's one of just the, a general theme that we have throughout this whole AI landscape is that the classic, it's going to take longer, but probably more impactful. And I think that it will take longer for investors. They'll be disappointed, just like Tesla investors are disappointed about margins for the September quarter. doesn't really matter bigger, longer term. I think it'll be the same case with Microsoft. But I think ultimately, I've made a mistake with Microsoft. I've always thought that this company is not innovative and they have really ripped innovation from the hands of a lot of the other tech companies. And they're in a good spot longer term. That's That doesn't change the near term, more of a measured outlook on how the stock's going to perform
1: this week. So last week on the pricing, the stock broke out. Again, it was a new all-time high above that prior high um, that was about 350 here. And, and just expectations to reactions. Let's say if it comes in as expected, you wouldn't expect the stock to get back on its horse. Maybe it pulls back a, a little bit further. I'm just curious your thought process, because it sounds like you'd be a buyer on any weakness.
3: Buyer on the weakness. I think that they've already came out with their positive metric for the quarter which was that some details on the pricing with some of the co-pilot products. And so I think that probably trades off and probably ultimately creates an opportunity. Expected move in the options mark
1: about 5% in either direction for a $2.5 trillion market cap company. If it were to do that, would be fairly sig- significant either way. Let's talk about Alphabet here, because this is one where on a year-to-date basis, it's trailed, the, the Magnificent Seven, pretty substantially up about 35%, still about 20% from its all-time highs here. But on evaluation, valuation, it's really different, okay? It, it's trading 23 times or something, expecting, Growth, a little less if you look at the out year than some of these main competitors. I think for whatever reason, investors are pricing in just a less competitive product right now, which means to me, lower expectations. But if you look from 2023, their gross margins are expected to be around 67% to next year in 2024, only about 61%. What's the big change there? Because that is obviously the reason why this stock trades at about 10 turns less than many of its peers that are really enjoying a lot of investor enthusiasm about the product offerings and at least where they are right now. And I also think it's interesting that this morning there was an article in the Wall Street Journal talking about Sergey Brin spending a lot more time back at Google, right? So one of the founders here really working on their product Gemini, which will compete better with the Microsoft back open AI and how they're integrating that into all of their products and services, whether it be from search to productivity tools.
3: So Google has been left, uh, generally left out of this AI run from a lot of these companies, which has really been a surprise to me, just given in 2017, they changed their focus to organize the world's information to being an AI first company. And I've mentioned this on your pod before, is that we used to count how many times in 2017 and 2018, Google talked about AI and machine learning on their calls. It would be 15 to 20 times in their management comments. That's a lot. And so they have had this disconnect between what they have been investing into artificial intelligence and what the market is giving them credit for. And the simple reason is that there's a logical problem that Google has. And that is this handoff between the 10 blue links to a single result. About 80% of Google's business is related to search. And if you assume that is gonna go through some form of a, a shift in terms of user behavior, monetization, that makes investors nervous. And the, you could build a case that this stock should be down based on that if you think that this is gonna be more of an air pocket. My belief is that this will be a headwind. I think that there will be downward revisions to analysts' expectations as Google goes through more of this. We've seen it before. We saw it when just after Facebook went public Most of their business was on desktop, they're moving to a mobile environment, and that was a headwind. We saw in the past year with Meta related to Reels, as they've been shifting traffic from higher monetized Instagram over to Reels, it's been a a revenue headwind. Last year, Meta's earnings were down almost 50%. It's a remarkable what these transitions can do. Investors pick up on that. They're keen to that. And so that is one of the reasons why Google hasn't gotten the bid when it comes to AI. And I'll make a full stop there and jump into what you said about Sergey coming back. It's my understanding he's been living in New Zealand. My understanding also that he's been on campus for three, four days a week in in Mountain View. And I think that speaks to not only has the company been heavily invested in AI, but just that they will have a play here. And of course we know that AI is built on models Google has data, they have buying intent, all of that can be used to ultimately train BARD and other models that they're gonna have coming out. And I think that they're gonna be one of the big winners. When you put it together for this earnings week, I think it's gonna be fine for Google. I think investors don't have that same hype and optimism that they have in Microsoft. And the search business is the business that just keeps driving. And I think in the near term, it's gonna be just fine. And I think that as far as a macro, because they're also a read on the macro, it's gonna be relatively stable. So I think when you put all these together, I think that Google's in a good place going into earnings this week.
1: Some of the folks that I talked to who think that some of these other guys have gotten a little bit ahead of their skis, that they almost want to see a Google come back to 110, 105, or something like that, and, and, and really price in this expected downshift and in, in margins and that transition, that handoff that you're talking about from the 10 blue links to, let's say, the one large language produced response. And I guess that is really why analysts are already modeling in the downshift in margins. But with 19 times next year with expected earnings growth in the mid to high teens and, and sales growth maybe re-accelerating a bit. This one, it looks like the only cheap one, but has the most kind of risk here. You mentioned Meta. Let's talk about this one here, because again, when you think about what just happened to their earnings last year and that big transition, but really the excitement in and around threads, the excitement in and around Llama, which is their kind of large language model that they're going to open source and they're going to put out to the world. It seems like this company in 18 months has gone from something that was such a head scratcher just the, the, the kind of the shift of the name, the shift of the focus of the business, the acknowledgement of their core business, really at a, a, a massive crossroads here. But then when you think about what they've been able to do with Instagram, with Reels, now launching threads to the, let's just call it the success, of onboarding 100 million users. And we know that was on the back of Instagram. But all of a sudden, Gene, I start looking, and this is not me giving Mark Zuckerberg a pass. They went from being one of the biggest villains of the last seven years in tech to somebody who's meant to be now a savior because he's gonna get in a cage with Elon Musk and he's got a product. It. No, but it, it, he's it, right. it, it is fascinating. But I just wanna get your take on this. All of a sudden, when we think about Elon Musk's obsession with a super app. And I think about Zuckerberg and their early attempt at hardware and their early attempt at an operating system, a mobile operating system, and they just went the way of whatever. They just said, we're going to copy Snap. We're going to copy TikTok. We're going to copy Twitter. Think about it. All of a sudden now, they have WhatsApp, which they've never monetized with, what, over 2 billion monthly active users, right? They have Instagram with over 2.5 billion monthly active users. They have Reels, which I I get it. If you talk to the kids, they'll tell you, ah, Daddy, I saw that on TikTok two weeks ago or whatever. Think about the growth of Reels. Think about their ability in e-commerce that is just evolving. And now all of a sudden, if they can turn Threads into a Twitter killer, and Twitter was a horrible business. I know that. You covered the company for a long time. It was a company that was being run into the ground. If Threads can become something that looks a lot like Twitter and actually be something that they don't have to monetize through subscriptions, which is what Elon wants to do, but they are, Apple, able to do it with average. All of a sudden, you have the makings of a mobile operating system of a super app right there. And let's not forget what they want to do or what they tried to do with uh, digital coins and the like here. I think this company might be the cheapest and most interesting of all of them when you think about these different verticals that they seem to be excelling on.
3: I'll add one other piece to that, too, is the metaverse. They're still spending a lot of money there. They're either going to start to see some headwind there or headway, or they're going to reduce the spend on that. So I think that's a net positive. When you put it together, come back to pressure points going into when they report their quarter. The two pressure points are what the monetization on reels is and what the daily active user number is. Threads came out on July 11th, July 7th, July 11th. And so that does not impact the June daily active user number. It's probably gonna grow at two or 3% consistent growth over the past few years. And, but as they talk about the impact of threads, they probably will say it's gonna be a fractional increase. I suspect that it takes it up by about a percent, the year-over-year growth rate. So if it was two in June, it probably is three, but that's a big deal when it comes to uh, two billion plus daily active user numbers. So that's pressure point number one. Their commentary about the September quarter is probably going to be in a good place. Even with the sharing that came from, most of that came from Instagram, there still was incremental people, present company included, that got onto Instagram that haven't been on Instagram for a long time. So I think that that's uh, point number one. Point number two, when it comes to reels, agree that they are far behind TikTok, but they, this headwind, and the street generally knows this, but I think it's still a positive, is that the headwind, as they've been siphoning traffic from Instagram into reels, that monetization headwind starts to and be anniversary, and that becomes a net positive. They will probably make commentary by early next year. That should be a tailwind. Reels should be a tailwind. So those are the two pressure points. I think that Meta will score well on both of those. One thought on threads and, and what potentially they could be. Zuckerberg, Agree exactly with your commentary about what has uh, cha- turned him from being a villain into a hero. It has been the engagement uh, with Musk and ultimately is he is making the product line or the value of threads for I forget what he says less clutter less noise. And we've gone through and looked at just political ideologies and who's on what side. And at the end of the day, it comes down to Threads probably gains a third of Twitter's users. That doesn't mean that Twitter goes away. But when you take a third of the users out of the mix, that's a problem for Twitter. And so I think it's here to stay. I think Threads is here to stay. I think that they're going to strike a value point with a lot of consumers who want that more, just less noisy kind of experience and so it doesn't have a big impact on monetization in the near term. But I think that they're going to have some good talking points about threads over the next year.
1: It'll be fascinating as we head into 2024, the big presidential election year. And I think one of the things that turned all of us off about Twitter is just the amplification of a lot of the, the loudest voices. And they seem to be around political sort of things. And it really ruined the platform for a lot of people. The irony here is that Facebook did fantastically with that but going back to 2016. And, and you think about it that was one of the things why Mark Zuckerberg was trotted out in front of Congress on no shortage, I I don't know, at least a few times back in 17, 18. And what they're saying now is that they are so good, their algorithms are so good, they can actually tamp that down, which is actually one of the reasons why I think Elon was really interested in buying Twitter, because he wanted to make it just this kind of take all of it out, the pure free speech play. But I think advertisers have voted with their wallets. I think a lot of consumers have voted with their wallets, And if they can make the threads experience the real-time town square real-time search thing more like instagram then they're going to have a winner here there's no doubt in my mind and that thing may end up just being this kind of echo chamber for people who want to scream about politics and the like here so it'll be really interesting to see i guess as somebody who like tries to be optimistic about tech and and tech, tech platforms i am optimistic about that but i have to cut out a part of my brain that realizes that it's really hard for people and companies to change. And I'm not sure the DNA of Facebook or Meta or whatever you want to call them. I think that when push comes to shove, they may end up dealing with a lot of the same problems that Twitter did, but just they're going to be able to monetize it far better than Twitter did. Agree. I know we got um, a lot to go through still, and I know we don't have a lot of time here, Gene. Let, let's talk about Apple really quickly, because next week, This is one where it kind of astounds me, the ability for this stock to make a new all-time high. It got above $3 trillion in market cap. I think it's easy to say that expectations are particularly high. We know that the product cycle that's coming in the fall here, new operating system, new iPhones. Just give me a sense of where you think this company is. That article in Bloomberg last week, I think it was interesting. It obviously wasn't a leak from the company. They don't care about stuff like that, where it was that they're rushing around to come up with some generative AI tools that can be commercialized. We know that they've spent billions and billions of dollars on machine learning and a lot of this sort of AI that is exciting in and around Microsoft and Amazon and Alphabet and and Meta right now. This is a company that has been working on all of this and integrating it into their products. And we know that just because they don't have something to be commercialized at the moment doesn't mean that they will not have one of the best products, whether it be a year, two, three years from now. That's just the way they operate.
3: So the AI piece, maybe let's put that in the other things going on category when it comes to Apple especially this week and focus on the pressure points our biggest pressure point is the number of monthly active devices this is a metric that Apple's been promoting more recently and I believe the recent stock Action relative to the fundamentals is evidence that's what investors are looking for. In the December quarter, it grew 8% year-over-year, which is an acceleration from 4-ish percent. They didn't give out the exact number in the March quarter, but they did mention that in a very brief press release. They're always brief, but in that first paragraph, they said their monthly active devices grew year over year and that is going to grow again in the June quarter. The math is it almost has to grow. The device revenue could be down almost 30% and they could still maintain flat active monthly devices. So devices are probably going to be down 2%, 1%, maybe up a couple percent. So they're going to grow that number. So that is the sleep well at night number. That's this whole ecosystem is in in place, the flywheels working. And that is the piece that allows investors to be comfortable at owning Apple, despite what was some concerning TSMC news around uh, smartphones down 22% in the June quarters. They just reported that the street's looking for Apple's iPhone revenue to be down 1%. There may be some softness to that number, but I don't think really investors are going to care that much because as you said, there's an upgrade cycle coming and people eventually are going to upgrade. So my take is is that that's the key pressure point. I just want to just quickly talk about Apple and AI, and they've been clear to publicly avoid talking about AI because uh, number one, I don't think it is a particular strength of theirs. And number two is that they don't want to play into the hype. But if you think about this whole concept of artificial intelligence, there's a, a new layer being talked more about which is personalized AI. This isn't going to a chat bot and, and trying to get some help writing emails. This is the idea of asking a chat bot who knows you, what restaurants you like, what your travel preferences are, what your driving preferences are, all of this, and to ask it questions and it gives you some insights and helps book all these different little parts of our lives. and. Ultimately, that is a privacy-first type of an AI experience, and Apple's built a brand around privacy. So my money is on that eventually, one, two years down the road, Apple really goes hard after this personalized AI. I'm going to be writing more about it, but I would just leave it there for now.
1: Yeah, and I think health probably has a a big something to do with that also too. So, you know, I find that all pretty interesting. And really that is a service that this company has been able to be revalued on the back of that kind of device growth that you talk about, but then obviously the uptake of a lot of services there too. So to me, I get it. I was trying to pick apart for years what was the universal kind of bullish view on Apple. I'm not saying at all time highs, I'm changing my tune on that, but I've been very consistent in the fact that I think there's markets for them to win, especially as the hardware piece of this just gets iterative less interesting do you know what i mean and and i guess that's how you revalue this company but just for the here and now gene you mentioned that the, the taiwan semi the guidance on smartphones apple is a 20 plus percent customer of taiwan semi they guided smartphones down 20-some percent, okay? And when you think about just demand, you think about the deflationary readings we're getting in China, okay? China could be a huge issue. And it brings me back to that kind of Q4 calendar 2019. Do you remember when Apple had its, I know you remember, its first negative pre-announcement in probably 10 years? And it was on the back of China. And I just don't know how this is going to play for Apple. When you think of all of the issues that it relate from a geopolitical standpoint between us and all the things that are going on with advanced chips and the bands and this and that, i just think that apple has got to be in the crosshairs here man and i just think from a nationalistic standpoint and the the buying of uh, hardware and services at some point i've got to think that this is going to work its way into demand for apple products in china
3: china will be negatively impacted and i think that there is risk to the iphone number in the june quarter the piece that has been made it more complex for me is I thought that there was concern going into the December quarter and they missed the miss. It was bad. And then I thought there was concern about the June guide when they reported the March quarter and I was right. And both times the stock just kept trading up based on that monthly active device number. And so in this case, I think that there is risk. I think everything you just said is spot on. But I don't think investors are owning it for that. I think they own it for just this idea that our lives are becoming more dependent. There are three companies out there who are trying to integrate hardware, software services. It's Google, Samsung, and Apple does it by far better, my opinion, better than those other two. And I think that as consumers, as we want more of those devices, I think that is the piece that keeps this multiple where it is. I'll just put one postscript to the whole conversation that is going to be probably get some pretty good airtime on this, which of course is Vision Pro. Vision Pro is going to surprise investors. It won't surprise investors in this year or next year, maybe in 2026. It will not surprise. But I think long-term, this concept of spatial computing is real. And I think that we, we being, I think, information workers, we'll be spending one to three hours a day in spatial computing within a decade. And Apple's going to have a big opportunity there. My point in bringing up uh, Vision Pro is that it is still in the category of other things that they can get into that can continue to expand what they're doing. And that's far beyond uh, what the TSMC numbers are and some of the issues with China. I think they're just going to keep turning those screws down. All right.
1: And and again, I'll just say this about expectations. This stock has generally gone unchecked. It had a pullback in February from the highs from about 155 to one. 45 or something. And since then, it's just been on this kind of torrid pace. It's gained, you know, 55% from its lows in the first week of January, which is pretty astounding for a $3 trillion market cap company. I think the safest thing for all of these themes, if you love all of these themes that are infected themselves into the psyche that didn't really exist in these stocks, let's call it six to nine months ago, would be a healthy pullback, right? A little fear put back in the market. There's been a lot of Johnny come lately to these stories, you know what I mean, who are really just keying on this last piece. I'm just curious, Gene, and I know we got to go in a few minutes, but I want to do two things. I know that Amazon reports next week. I know this is a name that you know very well. Thoughts here, because this one was left out of this party a little bit, joined the party quite recently. How are you thinking about Amazon? How are you thinking their core drivers? The North American retail piece has been interesting because of COVID, inflation, the overbuilding, the pullback of that sort of stuff. But there's also been these other themes, right? The advertising piece, which you know very well, you've been very bullish on that. And then also the integration of a lot of these technologies. Think about how many billions of dollars at the cost of profitability to Amazon over the last 10 years, their investments in machine learning and AI, but then also AWS, this is a huge part of this, right? and their ability to offer a lot of these tools across that cloud platform. This is a huge piece to the Amazon puzzle.
3: It is. The pressure point in the case of Amazon is going to be AWS. And of course, it's been decelerating. Azure and Google Cloud Services has been maintaining almost 30% year of year growth rate. Now it's going to be probably 11, 12% for AWS in the June quarter. But the reason why there's some room for optimism on Amazon, my bottom line is I'm more indifferent. I don't know how that indifferent. I'm unsure how it plays out relative to this print. I think that the positive is that they're probably going to start to see VWS year-over-year growth in the back half of the year. The numbers just get too easy for them. And and they're also going to have some benefit from all that's going on uh, with the broader AI theme and some of the cloud. So I think that probably gets the stock moving. The key question that I'm trying to figure out it gets to the retail business, still uh, a huge uh, part of the business, call it 70% of their business. And I think when you uh, look at the margins on that, they're still essentially flat over the past decade. It's incredible. Could there be, this is the question that I'm trying to grapple with, is there a a case that over the next five years that as more automation comes into the logistics piece, I recently toured an Amazon fulfillment center, there's still a lot of people, a lot of is this is human labor. As As automation starts to play into this, could their retail business actually come back and become a darling part of the story? Could this be a 5% operating margin business? If that was the case, I think the stock goes higher. It's not the near term, but that's what I'm thinking about.
1: All right. So just last thing here. So this near term, this is you putting your kind of um, public investor hat on, your public markets analyst hat on. And then at Deepwater Asset, you guys also invest in the private markets and you think about things with a, a, a long-term time horizon. From an investment standpoint, I'm sure it's a traditional sort of VC, five to 10 10- uh, your arc, but then you're also thinking about themes over multiple decades. And and I know that our listeners have gotten to hear you talk about EVs and autonomous driving and the like, and, and you don't take a, a near-term view. You're taking a view out, let's call it 10, 20 years. Talk to us a little bit about how you're thinking about just X, the here and now about AI. And I know that this has gone back and forth. Some people think it's overhyped near-term. Some people think it's it should be more hype right now because this is going to change the world. What is your like, kind of the top line thoughts right here on that.
3: So we'll take a 10-year view where AI is going to believe. And first, we think that the world's going to be around. We think that humanity will be OK. We don't think that this is the end of humanity. There are smart people who believe that this is the beginning of the end. We don't believe that. We think that this ultimately is going to be tools that will make us more productive. There clearly is going to be some shift into uh, jobs and how we work that of course has been pretty well outlined in the near term. It's everything from consultants to service, uh, customer service related type of roles. Those are the obvious ones. But again, 10 years out, humanity is gonna be around. Number two is I think that there's gonna be more division in terms of how people think. I think that there will the concept of truth is going to be more elusive, and I think that there is one piece that we can all we should all agree on is that the amount of misinformation that's going to come out from AI is going to increase and increase by a lot. And so, when we think about the world a decade from now, I think that's an important uh, vector to it. Of what does that mean for society? What does it mean for? everything from the products we buy to the people that are elected and i think that's an important x factor to how ai plays out more ultimately more division i think that the other piece is i think there's going to be an increase in the number of skilled trades jobs i think that people who are being displaced over the next decade from ai are going to shift to think about uh, jobs today that are paying eighty thousand plus plumbers, electricians, I think those jobs become $150,000 a year type of of roles. And so I think that you're going to see that kind of shift to the, uh, the labor force. And then also say a decade from now, who knows where my job is? If, in fact, the ability for machines to do better predicting around the markets, which they should be able to do, what does that mean for asset managers? That's a question that's in the back of my mind. Good news is we're going to be around as humans. Bad news is that there's probably going to be more division, but still a huge opportunity. And just to put a final thought on it, Dan, is I think that the impact of AI, despite all the hype, I think it will exceed the hype in a decade.
1: That makes a lot of sense here. And I think market pundits like myself better watch their asses here because I'm sure a bot can do a better job than what we, than we've that been no doing No, I know. Listen, Gene Munster, you're the man. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, You went through that in a way that with a level of efficiency that very few in your seat can do. So we really appreciate Gene Munster of Deepwater Asset Management joining us. We'll see you on Fast Money this week. See ya. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi.